Good day to you all. My name is Mark McCartney and welcome to the What is a Good Life podcast. For those of you that followed the newsletter last year, the objective remains very much the same. I'm trying to provide you with tools and content that will help you find and define your own answer to this question. While I'm also trying to reveal more of what I perceive to be genuine expressions of the human experience. I'm hoping that the guests I'm interviewing will provide you with new tools and lines of self-inquiry to also better understand yourself. My first guest is Lawrence Barrett. While I could give you a long list of Lawrence's credentials, I'm pretty sure that would only make a skin crawl. So to keep it short, Lawrence is the founder of a consultancy group called Heresy, which focuses on psychodynamic and Jungian leadership. He has recently written a book, A Jungian Approach to Coaching, The Theory and Practice of Turning Leaders into People. We discuss, amongst many other things, the influence of Carl Jung's work on his life and his approach to life, while also the very simple but important message of paying more attention in your own life. Look, I really enjoyed this conversation with Lawrence. I learned plenty from it. I suspect you will too. And so without further ado, the first episode of the What is a Good Life podcast. So Lawrence, thank you very much for, for joining me today. Um, the first question I have for you is, what is it about the work of Carl Jung that first attracted you to, uh, to his work? Okay, I mean, when I, when I was a student, um, I was fairly typical as a student. I wanted to spend the summer basically rock climbing and smoking weed. Um, and um, I discovered that the university gave grants to people who did sort of righteous academic work over the summer. Um, some of the best best climbing that I certainly wanted to do at the time was in um, in the Dordogne and, and, and the Pyrenees. And me and a friend, we cast around and we discovered that those were where there were a number of, of prehistoric uh, prehistoric caves with prehistoric cave art. And we thought, hey-ho, you know, we'll get a grant to study prehistoric caves and spend, spend the summer climbing this. How good can it get? Um, which we did. We, we got a grant and we went down there and it was, um, it, it, and it was very interesting because the thing with with prehistoric caves is they're not pictures on rock um you know what what i saw there fundamentally changed my life because you are looking at images and ideas which they they kind of speak to you you know you you, you see herds of animals which under candlelight are moving you got handprints um and there was a particular moment in um, in, in one cave where there was a a flint hand carved flint that had obviously been used to, for carvings that someone had stuck in the wall of the cave in a, in a particular kind of soft bit of mud and the mud had turned to stone over the 12,000 or so years and there's this kind of flint there and it's this very strange feeling of this is this is like a person has put this here and I, I met with um with a, a famous French academic uh, in, in in caves who who said to me that understanding cave art was the the equivalent of trying to interpret the the catechism of the catholic church from the floor plan of the vatican um which which was kind of depressing actually at the time and i thought this is this is actually not helpful because i felt this very strong kind of kind of magical feeling actually um and then by some strange chance i was given my wife gave me uh, my girlfriend at the time my wife gave me a um a book called the the myth of the goddess by two Jungian analysts called um jules cashford and Baring. Um, and this book provided a, a lens to 
not really understand cave art in in in, in the in this in the sense of i understand it and it is done but understand it in the sense of locating myself in that sort of space wondering what was being communicated to me trying to make sense of what i felt about it um and that was that was a Jungian book and they talked about the collective unconscious and they talked about archetypes and in reading that i was able to get a sense that the cave paintings were talking to me in a way somebody twelve thousand years ago was communicating something through the wall of a cave to me um, now i don't know exactly what that is it would be delusional to imagine that i did but there is a there are kind of images and themes and ideas which were were in some way being transmitted and that got me very interested in the idea of the collective unconscious and 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 you know you mentioned earlier when we, we were chatting the, the the cultural unconscious you know why do our cultures do what they do and when you start to look at things from a jungian lens what you realize is that your ancestors um from literally your parents down to you twelve thousand hundred thousand years ago are talking to you um they're passing ideas to you um they're passing symbols to you that exist in the day-to-day -day world around you um that shape how you think and how you are so for what jung offered for me was the ability to kind of make sense of a symbolic um kind of complex changing dynamic world um that that um gave me a little bit more information about what was going on than just the rational yeah, that's a, that's a hell of an answer. <laughs> it, it's, there's some, look, I'm, I'm not a, I've, I've read some books by Jung, um, Modern Man in Search of a Soul. Um, the, this book here actually that I dug out before talking to you that I'd, that I've, I've picked, picked at. I think sometimes I've read it where maybe I wasn't even ready to, understand it fully and it kind of went through me like bad street food or something like if you know what I mean but I but I but I've read it like there's something about his work that I think kind of embraces the complexity like it, it tries to distill it somewhat but it doesn't try to ignore the fact that this is a really complex kind of challenging piece that we're trying to figure out in life does that resonate with you oh totally because I mean if you imagine Jungian work has found its its biggest sort of um, um, theater, uh, not in not in analysis or psychology at all, but in in you know in the movies and in yeah. in, in books, um, because there's something Jung saw in the way we tell stories, um, the way we create art that speaks to something much, much bigger than something that's, you know, kind of tightly reductive around um, psychology and science. And I, you know, what Jung was trying to do is understand and analyze this sense of, of, of uh, mystery. Yeah. Um, and I, that's, that's a hell of a task. And obviously he was, you know, attacked for being a mystic sometimes, but I, I think that's very unfair because what Jung was really trying to do is look at something which we all know to be true because we all feel it and try to, uh, to to put a frame around that, which allows us to, to make sense, not in, enough to sort of get the essence of it, but enough to get the feeling for it, to locate ourselves somewhere in this, this kind of mystical world, which we actually inhabit. And hence why things like movies are so important, because you watch a film and you, you know what it's about, you know, yeah. you know the story because you've lived it yourself to some degree. Yeah. 
I think um, Herman Hesse is a, an author I really enjoy. And um, some of his books where he's touching on some of these themes, like they're, they touch on almost a visceral level because I think he kind of through, and I know he was, a, he, I believe he was a patient of Jung, right? I think so, yeah. From what yeah. I right. Where like there's something that's so raw and honest uh, about some of his books and kind of even self-autobiographical, autobiographical, even when they're obviously, it's not set up as that, but some of the things that he's saying he's experiencing, the honesty or something. I don't know. With Jung, I, I think that there's like an while I'm sure he wasn't ultimately absolutely humble or something, there's a humility in his in his curiosity, which it's an area that I'm really interested in, in even in, in terms of Jungian analysts that I see, like, um, I don't know, James Hollis or a, a Bob Johnson or something like book, books like that that I've read as well. Yeah, I, I like the thing about humility. I think you're absolutely right, because I mean, how I imagine it is that, you know, in in exposing himself to the sort of depth of history you can't fail but to be humble yeah yeah it's, it's kind of it's kind of quite big you know if you know what i mean and once you start <laughs> looking at looking at myth looking at dreams looking at the the sort of massive space of the psyche um you realize that so much is possible that you you, you can never really know all, all you can do is try to make sense of it there was a, a great quote and i'm uh, forgive me i'm not going to remember the whole quote but jung talked about our our ability to understand mind you know, the closest we can ever come is under is is with the words it is as if and once you sort of get that in your mind it is as if um then you can start to begin to understand what might be happening but you also know that you'll never really know you can look at culture you can look at history you can look at myths you can look at what's happening with a client in front of you or or, or a friend yeah. and you can think it is as if um which helps you better understand them but the journey's never really done yeah you can't nail it down how do you like because i think that's when i first you know we talked before i talked to you about different modes or methods in which i try to use and whether it's self-reflection or self-awareness or something like that and at the start, I think there's almost like this youthful exuberance of like, I'm going to figure out the answer. <laughs> and then <laughs> that humbles you pretty quickly. Like, you know, after a few false dawns and maybe a bit of the phony holy in me, uh, then I, I don't know, I saw it more as just coming to peace or at ease while I can still endeavor to understand more. I'm not going to have this moment perhaps where it all makes perfect linear or symmetrical sense yeah. for you can you when like when did you think you kind of came to peace with that idea that okay i'm fascinated I've, I've you know clearly by the way you talk about this you've got a big curiosity for this but how do you how did you get kind of comfortable with the idea that it's it's not going to have this you know completed like like life won't have this completed finality to it yeah, I, I, I mean, I don't think I am comfortable with it. I, and, and I, <laughs> I don't think I've ever sort of wanted, wanted, um, wanted to believe that there is a certainty. And yet at the same time, I don't think I've ever been happy about the fact that there isn't one. I, I, I think, I mean, this for me is something that I, I, I feel I've been struggling with for a lot of my life. Um, but if we, if we look at it from a Jungian lens, Jung, Jung talked about the principle of finality, that, that, that exact word. Um, I think we need, as human beings, the illusion that that one day we'll be done. Yeah, you know, and in a way, when we die, 
that may well be true we don't know but that's that's probably the best the best option we've got on that but we believe in this illusion we believe that if we get the job we'll be happy we believe that if we have kids suddenly our life will, will change for us we believe that when we you know x an x number of million pounds everything will be sorted out and and the reality it isn't it's always false summiting we're always realizing there's something else so we need the hope of an end game in order to continue along the path and in a way we are constantly struggling i think between the two you know because we know there isn't an end game and we'd get bored if we ever got one anyway um but at the same time you need something to keep you going because the path can be great but it can also be exceedingly hard and exceedingly miserable this is the sort of reality of life so i think the two work together so i i you know i i'd still like it to be kind of done and there are days when i wake up and think oh i wish this was all sorted out now i'm just bored with it um but knowing that that will never really happen um and so you set yourself goals and you can still believe those goals are real to a point while holding in the mind the fact that they're not real and and that's okay yeah that's uh i i think you capture something really beautiful there the there's almost a, a sense that we want the game to be over, but that won't, like that's that's going to make us absolutely miserable if there was like it's it's like almost a it's just like the great human dilemma or something, isn't it? <laughs> like wanting security, we, we, we had absolute I mean, security. This is, this is the whole thing about hope, you know. You have to go on being, yeah, um, and. And the story goes on and and um you know sometimes the striving is is the thing and that so i think both are needed and, and i think you can never really come to terms with that but yeah that's that's the essence of sort of adult life at least for me yeah i i think um for myself i definitely recognize that like um I don't know, sometimes that you're like the very thing I'm craving is the very thing that will bring me misery if I get it often enough. Yeah, sometimes you get what you want. That's the curse of life, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In terms of just that, like uh, when you notice that struggle going on inside of you, like do you have do you have ways in which you approach that or is it just the rising and falling of it and you just you just navigate life, through life and it, and it, as I say, it kind of pulses or are there, are there kind of any kind of shreds of comfort you take from either the work that you're doing or the way in which you approach life that, that help you with that? I think, I think the, the work I'm doing helps because I, I think we, I mean, there's, there's a quote from, and I, I don't know if it's a real quote. I think it's an archetypal quote from the, the poet GK Chesterton. He said that, um, fairy tales don't tell children that dragons exist children already know that dragons exist fairy tales tell children that dragons can be killed so right. it comes back to this point of hope and i i think in that sense what you're looking for in life what anyone wants really is enough sense of the world enough meaning to give them hope enough meaning that one day the dragon will be killed um knowing that you have to at the same time move on so there, there are i think several things that are important in terms of you know leave, living a good life in this sense one is you have to recognize where you are um you have to be able to see the world you have to be able to notice what is happening around you you know and where you are is where you are there's no point in deluding yourself you're anywhere else but then in that seeing being able to try to make sense of the things that you see 
um, both internally and externally, um, in the hope that you will be presented with some symbol, some path, um, some intuition that will allow you to take another step forward. I mean, that's all that life is really, you know, we're all falling into darkness um, and hoping that the next step we take is a solid one. Um, but if we're able to do that in a way which is at least semi-planned, you know, where there is some sense of the world around us, then, then I, I, I think that's, that's, that's all we can in a way really hope for, which is what all these, you know, the fairy tales, the symbols, the dreams, this is what they give us. They give us, they give us clues. And if we look for them, and this is why I think Jungian work is so interesting for me, if we look for those little symbols in, in, in the world around us, in the systems around us, um, we're slightly better equipped. Yeah. You know, when you mentioned earlier, the, the idea of the collective unconscious and the idea that our ancestors from thousands of years ago are, are communicating with us, even in, even in terms of your own interpretation of your, of your own life, how much, how much do you feel that we're actually in control of that pro like, you know, there's, it almost seems like there's a tsunami of things that have come before us and, and information and, and rituals and patterns and symbols. Mm. And we're kind of in terms of like, if we look at time linearly, we're kind of at the end of this, uh, you know, we're, we're the next phase of the one stepping into the dark. How much do you, how much do you attribute to not even like our conditioning, but our, our even like evolutions of our minds, of our brains, of our culture, like how much do you kind of give the, the individual credit for in, a, in being able to navigate their lives as skillfully as possible? Well, we're in a dynamic series of systems, you know, and some of those are deep history, some of those are cultural history, some of those are families, some of those are our organizations. Um, and some of these are things that happened to us yesterday, you know, the system is always changing. And I, I, I don't think we're in control at all. But I do think we have some ability to exercise agency, we can make choices. Yeah. Um, or at least we have the illusion of making choices, I'm not going to get drawn on the kind of existential philosophy that I know that leads to. But I think we have the at least the illusion of making choices, um, at least the kind of knowledge of what is happening to us. I mean, if we if we look at, you know, ancestral trauma, for example, and we recognize that that shapes the way in which um, in which we've shown up in part of our lives in a particular way, we can make some choices about that, you know, we can feel more comfortable with it, we can um, take some of the kind of energy out of it um, or we can use it and and for me the, the kind of essence of agency is being able to notice and understand those systems at all of those levels and 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 you know participate actually to, to you know show up and actually participate in your life rather than have your life happen around you and you just you know are washed where the currents take you yeah that's um I, I think I, I know where you're well, perhaps what you're referring to in terms of some of the, the stuff on free will. I've got I've got lost uh I've got lost in that before, uh, or just even earlier this year in, in terms of um maybe even entertaining the idea that we don't have it at all. Um and I don't know, there's there's uh there's something there like even in terms of just even in terms of the unconscious and the 
the message to to not go down that route because I don't want to get lost in that again in this in this conversation as well. But even when you were mentioning back in the cave and what, what inspired you with this in the first place, and you're seeing these, you know, seeing these handprints on the cave, you're even seeing this thing stuck uh, stuck in the wall and, and kind of really appreciating what people were trying to communicate to you. What do you like? What sense do you get at, at times of just like how how important it is to become aware of you know even in Jung's work like this deeper collective unconscious or even archetypes and and things of that nature and trying to make sense of of our present day life. Well, in a way, it's always the present day life because everything we see is is seen in the lens of the present. You know that that's the the reality. You know. Um, dragons tell us you know, fairy tales tell us that dragons can be killed um you know we're looking for lessons i don't know what what the guy who stuck the the flint in the wall was thinking i have literally no idea um but what it allows me to do is make sense of my own experience of that event so we're always in the present in that sense um and i think what noticing and being aware of other possibilities allows us to do is to sort of unpick things in ways that you just help you move forward you know i mean you you don't know i mean how, how much of, of of my life is is down to you know my grandfather's experience of the war or um you know the highland clearances um or um and i was said to a friend the other day you know i my family came out of ireland in the 40s and i i you know i said to him you know, i still haven't forgiven you bastards for the potato famine um <laughs> and you know when you look at some of this stuff yeah it, it, it changes you it influences you you know i know my my great-grandfather's war profoundly influenced my grandfather yeah so therefore what what has that done to me well it has it has a role but it's not it's not fixed you know it's it's always in the present it's always dynamic um, there's a Jungian called uh, Renos Papadopoulos's work. I'm very, I'm, I, I'm, I'm very influenced by, and, and I think, and I hope I won't misquote him. He said, as the, as the, as the past um, influences the present, so too does the present influence the past. So all of our memories happen in the moment. You know, we know Susan Loftus's research is really clear on this. Memory is an illusion. Um, we make shit up to suit us where we are now, and and that's okay. I think that's fine. Because what we're doing is we're looking at the collective, we're looking at our cultures, we're looking at our family histories, we're looking at our own background, we're looking at what happened yesterday in the context of what is happening now. And if we become more sensitized to those sort of experiences, if we become more sensitized to the choices we can make, uh, if we become sensitized to the meaning of words we use, then we can start to make better decisions. Again, for me, that's the essence of Jung's work. It's all about awareness what what we might refer to a symbolic attitude you know watching the symbols around you awareness of those and then making choices you know is this how i want to be does this word mean what i want it to mean you know is this is this how i want to show up and sometimes it is you know sometimes we can look at our family backgrounds for example and think yeah that's that taught me some good lessons and sometimes we can look at it and think yeah this this shit needs to stop now and i'm gonna i'm gonna take another view that's what this is really about yeah, I, I that resonates a lot because like I think there's something I've been saying to myself over the last few years is almost three things I need to reflect on um, myself, my family and my culture. And obviously, I could probably just even from talking to you now, I'll add my like his more a greater historical perspective, I, I guess, as, as well. But um, yeah, I, I think it's 
there's something really interesting about just paying attention to what's what's happening right now and and even reflecting on times in my life where I've completely deluded or deceived myself and I, and I, I don't mean that in a in a hypercritical way but like there's some whoppers that I've told myself that <laughs> under greater reflection uh, have proved to be completely false in what when you even like even in the work that you do or even from a personal perspective like are there are there kind of situations that where you I don't know where you you can kind of understand why we do that to ourselves like I know maybe protecting us ourselves from pain in the short term but it, it's amazing how compelling we can deceive and uh, kind of deceive ourselves yeah but you know I mean I again I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing I mean we are always deceiving ourselves and memory is an illusion yeah um I think what's important is that we are making conscious choices about how we think about those things. If we remember something in a particular way, if we remember something about our childhoods in a particular way, the question then becomes, how do I, how do I want to want to respond to that memory? You know, what do I do with it now? You know, to put it really bluntly, you could be a victim of your childhood or you could be a survivor of your childhood. You know, it's just in a word, the difference. Um, and it's the same for sort of every aspect of your life in a way. What are the stories you tell yourself? And what truths do you want to make from those? There's a great quote actually from Jung, if I, if I may read you it, because I was yeah, yeah, this yeah. morning, so I've actually got it in front of me. Um, from Memories, Dreams and Reflections, he says, thus it is that I have now undertaken in my 83rd year to tell my personal myth. I can only make direct statements, only tell stories. Whether or not the stories are true is not the problem. The only question is whether I tell what is my fable, my truth. And I really love that quote because I think the ability to reframe the stories, the narratives we tell ourselves, to tell our stories forwards, if that makes sense. Because yeah. much of the time we spend our time looking at our stories backwards. You know, this is why I am how I am. Okay, fine. That's a story you tell yourself. How are you telling it forward? What are the implications of that? What does that mean? And so what I think a sensitivity to all of these things allows you to access myth. It allows you to access fairy tales. Some of them are constructed by you um and that's okay that's that's cool because if you believe kind of slightly delusionally that they're true that's a little dangerous but if you believe that they're your truth and they serve a purpose that they have a a reason for being told in that way then you can start to use them you know then the dragons can be killed yeah just when you when you're using the word truth there, how, how does even, how do you, do, how do you to kind of define that word? Like in terms of, is that like a very malleable thing? Like, is that something that you could like, by the sounds of it, it's something that can evolve and change as you move through life or your perspectives change as well. Yeah, because it, it is, I mean, the truth of truth, if that sense is it's felt, yeah. it's, it's real, it's real in the moment. Um, you lie when you're telling a truth that you know is not true. But coming back to that quote from Jung, you know, there are there are truths that you tell yourself which feel right. And if you really look at them in the cold light today, you think, mm, yeah, it might be slightly exaggerated bits of it might not be true. But right now it's my truth and, yeah. and it serves this purpose and I'm using it for this reason. Um, and so it's this ability to look at these this kind of mess of unconscious of, of you know, the, the, the cultural, the collective, the family history, the, as I said, the stuff that happens to you yesterday. And from that makes sense, a sense which is felt, which you have lived, 
which allows you to do something with it. And as the truth goes, I think that's good enough. I mean, existentially, what is truth? You get entrapped in this idea that if not, you know, nothing is true, well, yeah, great, but that doesn't really help me. So how do I help myself with truth? It becomes whether that truth is felt. Uh, I, I, I fully, yeah, I fully agree with that because there, there are moments in my life where I just, the, the truth is a feeling. Like, you know, it's almost when somebody says something, like it's almost like a physical reaction I have to it. Like it's it's not like an intellectual deconstruction of what somebody said. It's like it hits me somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. It hits you. You know it to be true because you know it to be true. And and it's weird because we live in a world at the moment where there's a strange kind of cultural complex playing out, um, which is all around evidence based um, and and certainty. And there's a, there's a kind of there's nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves. But there's a, there's a weird neurotic fixation for everything to be evidence based. Um, and some things can't be evidence-based and sometimes the evidence we produce is moderately easy to deconstruct and when you start deconstructing it then you realize that everyone's getting very upset about it because it's not really evidence it's actually an emotional truth that people can't separate themselves from Um, and right down to things like neuroscience I mean one one of the things I found fascinating writing my book was around gender which was a hard chapter to write because when you start digging into the neuroscience, you realize that the neuroscientists themselves in many cases are adopting very emotionally held positions around this idea of gender, which is kind of a big you know, emotional issue. Um, and truth is getting lost somewhere. Even physical truth in terms of how the neurons work is getting kind of lost somewhere in that debate. So it's easier, I think, to step back a little bit from this and think, well, you know, Truth is entirely subjective. There is some reality here. You know, you jump off your roof and truth will hit you in 30 feet. Um, but truth is a, an interplay, it's a complex interplay of lived experience, of your personal myths, um, of family. It has some grounding, it has some reality. You know, even myth happened to someone somewhere once. Um, and at the same time, you have to be able to do something with it. It has a, it has something meaningful to you now. So what are you doing with that? I guess is the question. It's more com- life in that sense is more complex than you know people at the two ex- extremes would have us to have. It's not a mystical thing purely, and it's not a rational thing purely. It's a mix of both. How do you, uh, how do you kind of, nav- you know, when you kind of said, uh, I think even, it may have been before we started recording, but this idea that you think. Uh, Jung was kind of uh, not disregarded, but labeled as somewhat of a mystic. How, how do you, because uh, I, I watched your webinar yesterday as well um, around your around your new book, and you mentioned that you um, you were an atheist. Um, and hoping that, I'm assuming that position hasn't changed in the last few weeks. Not in the last few weeks. <laughs> so I hope the, the research there is up to date. But how, how do you kind of, Play with Jung's work, because I think I saw a BBC interview with him. It could have been in the 50s or something like that, towards the end of his life. Yeah. Where the the interviewer asked him again, um, do you believe in God now or something like this? Yeah. But no, he goes, I, I know God. Yeah. How, how do you kind of just out of, just from your own personal um, take, like, how do you know that the person's work you're following took that view and there is this, there is this beautiful kind of mystical element to him as well, right? Yeah. Like, um, 
and even just the the kind of the way he went into the world of dreams, the things that he disagreed with Freud with, that those are quite like, yeah, those are quite kind of profoundly him, if you know what I mean. So how, how do you kind of interpret that? I, I think, I don't think my position would be um, incompatible with Jung's. Um, I think when Jung was talking about that, he's not talking about God as a, um, uh, a particular uh sectarian view of god or yeah. a particular religious view of god what he's talking about is the relationship with the kind of oneness of the world um and when he says i know what he's what he's talking about is the lived experience of connectivity yeah um of of what we might term the you know the numinous as they as they call it which is the the deep unconscious um and i think that's um that's an entirely compatible view with mine. I mean, when I say I'm an atheist, I don't I don't believe that there's, you know, a God in in a line with a particular set of scriptures who's kind of looking over me and making rules. I, I think that's that's highly man-made. I think though that there is a a connectedness about the world from a you know a quantum level up. Um that is both scientifically suggested, although not proven, and um and felt, you know, coming back to my experience in the case, there was something that I felt. Now, maybe it's delusional. Yeah, I guess it could be. Um, but some of the ideas that Jung suggested or that have been suggested through, let's say, psychodynamic work, psychotherapy, we now know are true from a, a neurobiological perspective. So you look at something like neural entrainment or neural coupling where, you know, brains align as stories are told and all of this. It's, it's kind of magical in a way. Um, and so I, I think that for me, there is something profoundly connected about us and a, a, about our world. Um, and if we notice it, and I'm getting slightly mystic here now, but if we notice it, um, we can start to, as I said, make better choices about how we show up and the way in which we, we see the world and the way in which we relate to, you know, the, the, the not only just other people, but, you know, animals, the environment around us. Um, so yeah, I, I, I would, um, I wouldn't see myself being out of, out of sync with Jung on that one. Yeah. And no, I wasn't looking to mischaracterize you there or <laughs> mischaracterize you. It's a felt experience. Yeah, yeah. But, but I, but I think that is, um, there, there's something, cause I, I was, uh, raised a, a Catholic and, you know, my mum uh, took exception to certain things and we stopped going to church. And I think there is something in society where, the baby has kind of been thrown out with the bathwater. Like, and I, I don't, I take a very similar view to yourself. Like I feel I've had experiences where either of that oneness or just, just like awe or something like that's touched me so deeply or profoundly, both like in, in terms of just daily life and perhaps even meditative experiences, maybe even psychedelics or something. And, you know, I, I do think those things kind of provide, provide a shortcut, but there's something that my rational mind can't reconcile. And there's yeah. something, there's some words or there's some words um, that just can't capture what I'm talking about. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it's funny. I saw just even on what you're saying there and perhaps, and it wasn't, as I said, I wasn't trying to mischaracterize you there, but I saw Russell Brand interview uh, Ricky Gervais and Russell Brand explicitly says he believes in God, right? And I, and I believe in God, like, in my sense, not in a, there's this omnipotent power waiting to judge the hell out of me. Like, 
more in a loving sense or uh, an expanding sense, a creative sense or something like this. But I, I found it quite curious, like in the interview, Russell Brand was almost trying to challenge uh, um, Ricky Gervais's atheism, even though Ricky Gervais was with his connection with animals, with his connect, like the label was the only difference between them. Like, so the label to me seemed irrelevant, but he almost was trying to checkmate him into saying, aha, God exists. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But the labels are just symbols, you know, and this is, again, part of the problem. We apply these labels to each other without really thinking what the label actually means. So you might say, for example, well, I'm a man, you know, I'm Irish, I'm ex-Catholic or not that yeah. you can ever be an ex-Catholic, but um, being able to then look at those labels, and think, OK, well, what does that actually mean? How do I take up that role in the context of my collective unconscious, my cultural unconscious, my family, my own experiences, my own development, how I see the world, what I'm, what, where I'm projecting the world. So, in, you know, the really important thing, I think, is not to just take on these labels and go, well, that's what it is, because that's what I've been told. The, you know, the identifications, if you like, with, 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 with our past and, and the social uh, structures around us. But to think, you know, how do I take them up? What does it mean to me? And that's hard work. I think that 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 requires a lot of work from people. Um, and it is, in a way, the essence of um, adulthood to take on the responsibility ourselves to make those choices. Yeah, that's um, there's so, there's something really interesting. I think even I, I was reading a book by just when you talk about doing the work individually. I was reading a book by Aldous Huxley um, over the weekend, the perennial philosophy and where he's pulling um, he's pulling different uh, passages from different uh, religious texts and things like this. And, and he made an explicit point not to follow the philosopher, the philosophers of their time in the academic world, because they were kind of masters in understanding the words, but yeah. they haven't done the work themselves in order to connect with like you know they they haven't embodied or they haven't they don't imbue maybe the 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 experiences in which to earn the right to to kind of even to be talking about some of the the topics they were talking about just out of interest in, in your in your experience and I know you're obviously deeply connected with different Jungian analysts and, and this world what do you think even someone who's pursuing life through the lens of Jung in order to embody it what do you think are some of the biggest obstacles people face in terms of not just intellectualizing this but really trying to grasp life through this lens that's difficult I, th I think life is is by its definition I'm going to sound slightly obtuse here but I think life is a lived experience um and an experience you have to notice so the only way really to to develop um the only way really to to live a happy life in this sense to live a good life is to live it and to be aware of the living yeah. um and that can be really difficult because our fears are our, our darkness our shadow stops us living some aspects of our potential you know there are things that we're told not to do because we don't do that sort of thing around here um and some of those might be fair enough and some of them might not be fair enough and at the same time we don't necessarily notice 
the choices we're making those choices for many people are just made for them you know this is how you behave if you are a coach and therefore this is how i behave um instead of wondering well okay so what does that actually mean how do i take up that role and how do i notice what effect that has on others and on the world around me so i, I think there are two dynamics um for me that matter that i, I would work with with clients one is um questioning what they might think of as as kind of analysis, um, actually wondering why I do things the way I do them, and the second is what we might think of as bringing that back in and integrating it. What we might think of as synthesis, which is then making choices about how I I want to recombine those things, in, in as a sort of conscious, rational state. Um, that's really in in a way what what Jungian work is really about. I think. So like almost like a continuous deconstructing and reconstructing. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yes, exactly that. Which and is it's really continuous because you realize that some of the constructions you've made actually don't suit you now. They suited you 10 years ago, but now you've got to change them again. But the more you do it, the more the more it becomes a habit, um, you become, you know, uh, you become you build what they, they might term as an autobiographical self. You know, you, you're able to write your own story rather than have it written for you. Yeah, and I think um, I think that's one of the most satisfying feelings one can have in life uh, when you when you know you're not no one else is responsible. Look in, in in the context of a course, you're shaped by every like everything around you as well. Your all your interactions, your family, your history, all of these things. But the moment that you take enough responsibility for your own life that these are my choices, yeah. Um, and the feeling then, and I say this as someone who's definitely in process, right? Like I'm, I left finance in very comfortable situation to starting up my own thing in, in coaching and, and really needing more clarity on this whole space for myself at this point as well. But even just knowing that I'm living my own life, like this feels very genuine to me that it's, it's my own, it's, yeah, it's literally that it's, it feels like my own life. But that's that's super difficult because you've got two challenges that are always going to be there and never go away. One is the voices in your head. Yeah. You know, the, um, there's a there's a quote from um, a guy called Jeremy Holmes who said, you know, you're always telling your uh, your story to somebody. Um, so there's always someone in your head that that that, that you're living for a little bit. Um, so that's always a challenge because they're always going to be there going, oh, you shouldn't be doing that. Um, and the other thing is in the real world, the external world, that's incredibly threatening to some people. Um, it's incredibly threatening to social structures, to people who might not be able to make some of those choices. So on the one hand, this is, you know, it's a wonderful experience. On the other hand, it's profoundly alienating and terrifying um, because you are, the realization ultimately of living your own life is that you are living your own life and it's on you. Uh, and that's quite tough, I think, you know, in a way that's, that's why midlife is such a difficult experience for so many people and why so many people don't really go through it. They approach the midlife barrier and then, then turn away and, and, you know, fall back into their, to their roles because really moving through midlife, what it's really about is this sense of shit, the decisions I make are mine. How do I justify myself to the voices in my head and the, the elders in my society or my peers or my, how do I do that? And that's hard. That's really hard. 
Yeah. And to, to even clarify what I'm saying, it's definitely the most rewarding feeling, but it, it comes, uh, there's plenty of tolls to pay along the, the road, you, you know, like there's, why, why do you think that is? Because I've definitely experienced that as well. Just like, I, I've kind of, so I've kind of categorized it myself as just like frames clashing and like, you know, perspectives on life clashing subconsciously even more so than even look, sometimes it comes up and people say explicitly what we have a problem with each other in, in terms of choices that are being made. But I think when you're one of a pack, man, it's so easy. Even if you know the choices you're all doing. Um, and look, once again, there's certain, like my choices are my choices. They're not a prescription for anyone else. And it's, it's not the way, it's my way. You, you know what I mean? So what I'm what I'm doing most certainly isn't uh, advising somebody else to, to change their life. But there's something so uncomfortable about being around people that are making very different choices than you. But I mean, some of this is, this is kind of profoundly evolutionary or, or archetypal, isn't it? I mean, you know, we're monkeys and we don't have any natural weapons. We've got little tiny fingernails and our teeth are moderately limited um so we survive as a species through our relationships and and the problems with us are, are very simple if we're on the edge of the group the lions and tigers are going to are going to get us if we're in the middle of the group all the other monkeys are looking at us um and at some point you know that they're, they're, they're coming for us so the, human existence is a constant negotiation between self and group you know, if we're too much in the group, we're too deep in the center, um, it's a dangerous place. We, we lose sight of ourselves or we become a threat to the others. So we have to be, we have to be very cautious on this. If we, if we sit on the outside of a group and we set ourselves apart, yeah, something's going to get us. You know, the lions and tigers will come for us. So we spend our whole life watching and negotiating. And it's easier to be just subsumed in the group in that sense than to either move to those one of those two extremes but yeah this is the, this is the challenge it's something on the so uh depressing well depressing until you kind of start to laugh at the human predicament um you know about that like that we're we think we've got this great intellect um you know, we've created all these wonderful things, um, technology, some of our technological advances are, are can be mind blowing. If you think of even back to the people that were in the cave versus, yeah. you know, some of the technology that someone could walk into those very same caves with now. And yet we're so driven by our, our kind of evolutionary programming, even when we're absolutely and explicitly aware and there's, you know, a, a colossal amount of research to tell us that this is what you're doing and we still kind of can't help ourselves i need to fit in there's a great experiment by uh, solomon ash which is worth looking at where he, he what he did was he got he drew there were three lines drawn on a board all of which were of um different lengths and the experiment was i i mean i'm i'm, I'm going to slightly misquote it but let's imagine there were there were 10 people in a queue um one by one they'll they'll talk about those lines and you're at the end and all of them have been briefed to suggest that the shortest line is actually the longest. Right. And all of them say, oh, it's definitely that one. The experiment suggested that the last person, the innocent one, yourself, would go, yeah, that's definitely the longest and would fall into line with the group. So you will deny even your own eyesight, your own literal vision of what is in front of you to fit in with the group and the group perspective. Now, if we imagine it like that, 
we're then kind of um, an animal that is has got these two perpetual things with us. One, we have the illusion of self, and we want to be individuals. You know, we want to be we want to be the ape in the center with all, all the power. Um, but on the other hand, we don't want to be thrown out of the group because then we become the ape on the edge. Um, so we're we're constantly weighing up. How much can I get away with? How much is possible for me to do this? And that, in essence, I think comes to the heart of the human dilemma. And which is why I think the choice matters so much, because if you were able to make conscious choices, what you discover is some things don't matter enough. You know, I'll fall in with the group on that one. That's OK. Makes sense. Um, seems to work. Doesn't scare the horses. Everybody's happy and it's good for them. So it's good for me. And then other things you think, actually, I, I need to take a separate position here. This is important to me. This matters enough to risk group approbation to risk being rejected from the group if those decisions are, are kind of consciously made after a, a sort of life of life of awareness life of study life of, of analysis and synthesis um yeah those are good choices that's it's 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 a good way to live can you think of things that fall into the category of uh, or moments in your life where you've kind of said no this is one of the things where i have to go my own way well, I mean, let's get to go back to the Jungian thing. I'm not an analyst. I didn't train as an analyst. Um, right. The reason I didn't do that was because uh, while I value and respect the consulting room and the analytic work and the analytic process, um, I also found it limiting in the sense that I thought more could be done with Jungian thinking. Um, we could take some of these ideas out, um, although in a way they're already out of course with the use of theater and, and so on and so forth and, and films but we could take them out into organizations we could start to help people become more aware of the environment without around them to become more aware of symbol more aware of dreams without necessarily having to be in analysis in order to do that um, and that was quite a, a difficult decision for me because the easy route would have been you know this is this is what you do if you are a Jungian and you do those things and you check the boxes and then you have the certificate if you like to be able to do things um as opposed to i'd quite like to explore something else here and that was quite an alienating experience it still is for a while i mean i'm encouraged by my supervisor to keep to keep on the track i'm on but there are occasionally moments where you think it would have been a whole lot easier if i just um if i just take the boxes <laughs> yeah that's um what just out of interest like what what convinced you that it was worth it well apart from the money yeah breaking <laughs> 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 apart um i do remember a young analyst where i asked him, like a true marxist <laughs> i did i did uh, wow yeah he's <laughs> i did i did actually ask a Jungian uh, analyst once i said to him um you know what's the difference do you think between between therapy and coaching and he, he sort of sucked his teeth and thought for a while and he said that's actually quite an easy question to answer it's about it's about 450 pounds an hour um <laughs> so and he's overstating it and it was a joke, but at the same time, you know, there's a truth behind that. Um, so what convinced me was um, I, I did want to do work. I enjoy working in, in the corporate context. I enjoy working in, you know, with people in this very kind of normal, um, ordinary, prosaic way. You know, we all have jobs. We all show up. We all do work. 
um, I didn't like some of the work that I was seeing done. And I wanted to be able to take some of the ideas that I'd found so influential, so magical to me, you know, some of the things which had frankly, you know, transformed how I see the world and my life and, and say, okay, well, what would it look like to put those in, in an organization? Um, what would it look like to look at those those things in terms of, you know, waking dreams? You know, how, how do we help people think about, talk about fantasy in an organizational context without seeming weird? Um, or without going into analysis, you know, most people who are, you know, you've, you've been in banks, they don't want to sit and talk in a group about their mothers. Um, they might be prepared to talk about their fear of death. Um, they might be prepared to talk about what that means in terms of career ending, um, in terms of the exposure of leadership roles. Um, and if we can get them to do that, if that is interesting enough to talk about, perhaps we can start to help people better understand their unconscious and, 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 and live better lives. And that's actually certainly been my experience of the, of the work I've done. You know, if I'd, if I'd worked in corporates, the way I work um, from a very clinical perspective, I, I don't think it would have achieved traction. Yeah. Just said, because you've mentioned it a couple of times um, and I'm, I, I mentioned to you, I read a book by Bob Johnson, I think it was on dreams. Mm. I started to catalog my own dreams very briefly. How much work does it, I haven't met someone I think that's followed this through consistently in order to, I don't know, in order to navigate that, does that require a hell of a lot of work up front? And then does it become easier over time or, or how would you to someone who's listening and that that has never even heard, I guess, of the idea of even interpreting dreams, how would you explain it? And then maybe, I guess, answer my uh, answer my question in terms of is this is this a considerable amount of, of work? Well, I mean, you're talking to someone who's kind of intrinsically lazy here, so I, I don't necessarily do a considerable amount of work on my own dreams. Um, I've never kept a dream diary. I don't have the discipline for it. But what I do do is the dreams which are striking, the big dreams, you know, a lot of my own dreams that I I, I remember, and I, I, I do talk about some, um, a lot of them don't mean that much. Um, but there are moments where you encounter these dreams, which are yeah, they're the big dreams, and you get used to get a run of them. And there's three or four, and I'll I'll, I'll track them all down, and then I'll talk to my supervisor and my, 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 about them, and we'll we'll discuss the implications of the dream. Um, and I think instead, the work is then not about this intense kind of drudgery. Um, it's about a constant awareness. It's about making this a part of life. Jung suggested that we're always dreaming. Um, and the consciousness crowds out the dream, it crowds out the unconscious. And if we think about things like that, our sensitivity then is not necessarily just formulaically to the dreams we have at night. It's a sensitivity to what's really happening in the world, or what am I noticing in the world around me, some of which might be my dreams. So the discipline in a way is not a lot of work in that sense, which I naturally react against. Um, it's the discipline is around a kind of gentle focus over years of, you know, what, what am I seeing? Is that a pattern? Do I see that theme? Do I recognize that theme? What themes do I see in the world around me? What are my sort of waking fantasies? 
and the, it's we call that the symbolic attitude I mean that's a, a, a kind of yeah there is a constant amount of work on that but it's not hard work in that sense it's it's just a soft awareness a, a gentle awareness of what is happening around you yeah, some I, of which are dreams yeah I, I think that's beautifully put and I, and I think as well in terms of the the just even paying attention to the dreams like it, it sometimes they seem to you know from an absolute um infrequent amateur at it myself uh sometimes they just you wake up and they hit you with such a yeah profound sense of like it's a feeling like of, oh sh yes what was that trying to tell me like because it was trying to tell me something like and, and it's a good idea of, of, of a good example of how you, how you can then work with those because of course there is a moment in time so maybe the dream refers to something that happened to you the day before but also when you start to look at the whole constellation you know what's going on in my culture what's going on in my family what's going on for me you then start to discover patterns that might reappear yeah um, sometimes over a few nights sometimes over a few years sometimes um they'll disappear and reappear again um, and what's important in a way is not necessarily the strict interpretation of the dream, because I, I don't know, I, I, uh, the interpretation of a dream is a felt experience. You know, if you've, if you've interpreted yeah. the dream, broadly, yeah. right. You know, so it, it's, it's always a bit kind of pointless just doing it as an interpretation. But what's really interesting is when you start to work through that as context, when it becomes a lived, a, you know, a life, a lived experience, then you, you start to see your dreams, not as a thing that has to be interpreted but as another part of you communicating and, and talking, you can feel it. You don't need to interpret it because you're seeing it in the context of a number of things. And then you get these little moments of, oh, I think, I think this is where I'm moving. This is pointing me in this direction or it's pointing me in this direction. Um, and sometimes that does constellate to a very definite, this is this. Yeah, got it. Yeah. Um, and you know that, but sometimes it's okay. Just you, there's something happening in this space and I'm kind of allowing it to move i had a run over the last few days about um about mountains i've been dreaming about mountains um which has been interesting because i have deliberately not attempted to interpret them but you know there's there's a bit of my holiday in there which is happening in a few months time so i that's that's definitely real but then there are questions about you know why these mountains why at this point in time um what's happening there how do i feel and that's, I'm looking for commonality and connections, if you like, in the context of the challenges I'm facing at the moment with clients or with work or whatever, in the hope that something will surface, something will constellate and I'll be able to go, okay, this is, this is a way forward. Yeah. So it's a gentler thing, I guess, than, than, than this kind of very blunt instrument of I do this work and I get this result. But the, the commonality with lots of the things you're saying is just like, pay attention. Like, yeah, like absolutely it's you know it's amazing the kind of complex models we can interpret life through whether it's even through the work of Jung or through um clinical psychology or neuro uh, neuroscience and all of these things of what happens inside of us but i don't know that just in so many of the things you're talking about is just keep paying attention and it doesn't have to be in this very like i i meditate but it, it, if i only meditate for 30 minutes in the morning and then I just kind of have my head in my phone as I walk through life or I'm not paying attention to people when they're speaking if I'm not paying attention to my own reactions it doesn't matter if you do that like yeah. do you know what I mean like so it's this consistent paying attention which I don't know so I guess I guess even from my own experience sometimes like life can just be a little bit uncomfortable sometimes right so you do want to you do want to look away or 
even with the technology we have now, you you want to distract yourself with something. But yeah. it's so clear from what you're saying, like if you keep paying attention, things will just either they'll soften or they'll start to make sense. Um, and even when you're saying there about patterns, like a, a seeing the pattern and things when you collect, I don't mean this in a very kind of efficient manner of collecting data or something like that. Uh, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. But then if you keep paying attention, the thing the bubble keeps expanding and then more things kind of come into sense as the attention maintains. Yeah, absolutely agree. Yes. And you start to understand it surfaces gently. Yeah. And as you exactly as you said, it can also be really uncomfortable because some of the things that start to surface, part of you is going, No, I'm not gonna go there. I'm not thinking about that. Yeah. Um, and that's 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 also that also has its challenges. You know, you um it's not necessarily a, a kind of pleasant hobby looking into the unconscious. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, it, it, if you allow it a bit of gentleness and a bit of compassion in that sense, too, because, you know, there's an awful lot of stuff. You get this language with coaches, you know, we have to we have to be transformational. We have to crack on through. And I, I, I feel that lacks so much compassion because the compassion isn't just for the other, for the client. But it's a compassion for ourselves as well. You know, some things are, are hard because they're hard. Yeah. You know, there are things we don't want to face because they're hard and that's OK. You know, uh, allow them time. James Hillman was really good on this because often in the Jungian world, they talk about the, the gold in the shadow, which I always think has these connotations of this glorious prize. And Hillman talked about the cure in the shadow, which I, I thought was much nicer, much gentler. Um, this idea that, you know, within the shadow, we find ways to just just kind of allow ourselves to redeem ourselves a little bit. For me, it's what I'm learning, I think, in the last few years is, okay, I know that these are my, this could be in my shadow or this could be something I need to work on or something like this, but it doesn't have to be done by the end of the week. Yeah, absolutely. And there's some things that I, and, I, and I've white knuckled right this at times in facing some fears or in facing things that I don't want to, because maybe I had the energy to face that in, in bigger strides at different points. But there's also now when I'm, the longer I'm, I'm exploring things, it's like, ah, you know, yes, I'm, I'm smoking the joint and watching too much YouTube this evening, but <laughs> you know, I'm maybe even too, eating too much junk food, but it's because what I'm trying to explore is pretty heavy right now yeah. and expecting this like really efficient behavior from myself right now is not going to expedite the process. And maybe if it does, I'll probably lose lots of the richness in taking my time through this process. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and that's a problem I think for a society because we, we've got this weird obsession perversion you might say around um performance we've all got to have goals we've all got to have targets and 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 that's that's kind of a great sort of post-adolescent thing you know you you you've got to learn to you you've you got to learn to be an adult but it's not really a good place to be stuck because performance is, is is an illusion and ultimately it's going to dip off i mean you know quite apart from anything else you get older and the body just doesn't do it anymore and nor does the mind and nor does the inclination actually there's things that i would have put up with suffering i would have endured and you'll know about this in banking you know back in your 20s which you're just not going to do now um because actually you you know how to perform and once you know how to perform enough then the question emerges. So what next? What happens after performance? 
How do I make sense of what I have become? And that's a really different experience. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with, you know, performance-based working for people in, you know, the sort of post-adolescent phase, whether that's 20s or 30s, because, you know, we all got to learn to be to be functioning in efficient parts of our society. And there's something exhilarating about being good at something. It's amazing. Um, but you run out of rope. And the point that that starts to happen, the midlife point in that sense, is the point where you really have to be able to think, okay, so what's this for? What choices do I want to make? Why do I want to perform? Where do I want to perform? Where do I not care less? And, and how do I think about the implications of that for me, for others, for society? Those are really big questions. With difficult questions and they're the big leadership questions actually which i think many coaches don't really address within their clients and which is why so many of our organizations and societies are now so toxic because performance has become in that sense a perversion it's 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 a mono fixation yeah it's and then even on a macro level i think like the obsession with the with gdp as the as the metric for the strength of a of a country or a society is is wild as well exactly i mean you know you look at the uk you got one in three children in poverty we've got climate collapse we've got um exponential rise of food banks is that success and, and i i kind of think i'm not really sure i buy that um, there's a great quote from Trotsky, and I, I have to sort of get this in. He says that um, he said the 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 ends may justify the means as long as something justifies the ends. Um, <laughs> and I'm increasingly of the belief that very little justifies the ends now in the way that we are operating as a society. And I think a great deal of that is linked to performance. And if we, instead we step back and we just start to notice, you know, is this the sort of world we want to live in? What does it feel like to be here? What does it feel like to... I don't know, walk down to the beach at the end of my road and, 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 and see the ship floating in the water because some company has dumped it in there because it needs to hit performance targets. Is that the world I want to be in? Um, and once you start becoming aware of that, I don't think there's any going back in a way. You know, you have to start to rethink how you, you show up and what sort of a person you want to be. And those are really those are really difficult choices to make. And the answers in a way lie in the, these little symbols in the world. You know, what do I see around me? The waking dreams and the sleeping dreams. You know, what are they telling me that I need to focus on, that I need to think about? And the more we notice those, the, the more we are able to redeem ourselves. Just move, like looking forward then to the future, like what do you think? Because I often think that suffering is what brings a lot of people to make a personal change, right? Like it's not some virtuous epiphany that someone says i just want to pay more attention you, you know i you know uh i just want to be more loving like in my own experience i feel i was brought to my knees with my own suffering and then that forced change mm. for the on the wider if we look at the macro like what would you think would not expedite uh, expedite but like what do you think would be the thing that helped like that brings more people into that that view of the world I just think it comes back to noticing, you know, we need to be helping people notice what it feels like to live in this world. We need to be able to help people notice the world around them, the the the, the words that are used, the tone of the relationships they have, you know, the tone of the environment around you. Um, you know, you, I mean, I, I've done a lot of work with um, eco psychology and 
What's always interesting with that is when you start to become aware, forget nature, you know, just walk through a city. There are some cities which are actually, they feel like good places. You know, they're human. You feel that they're built around people. And there are other cities which feel like these kind of desolate graveyards. And the impact that the latter has on our, our psyche is, is profound, actually. How can we be happy in a place which reminds us that we don't matter? Um, as opposed to be happy in a place where, you know, it is of us and we are of it. You know, you walk through some of these old cities that um, that you'll know in, I mean, Europe is great for them. We're full of old cities in Europe. Um, and you, you, you see people here, you know, this is where place of your ancestors. This is like going back to the caves. Um, and if we start to notice that, we can then start to contrast those environments and think, oh, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go to that job. I'm not going to go to those offices. I'm not going to live like that. I'm not going to behave like that in that space. And instead, you know, that's actually pretty cool. I'm going to spend more time in that. I'm going to invest more time doing those things, being in those places. And in doing that, we start to, in, in a way, rediscover our souls. But that's hard because we also, in that process, recognize that while there are things that are really cool and really great, about the things we like and things we do. We're also vested in a number of things and have participated in the creation of a few things of which we are ashamed. That's where it gets hard because you realize that some of your, your life's problems are yours. You've built them, you've created them, you own them. Wow, that's pretty tough. Um, but in noticing and really consciously noticing, we can face that down, if that makes sense, and, and, and find a way through. Yeah, I always um, I always look to go to the micro first and then see what that might look on the macro. And um, what you described there is almost like my own personal experience of like, okay, let's look at things. Let's let's look at what I've been doing, what I've been contributing to. And the immediate reaction to that is like, oh, God, get that away. Or that's not me. Or, you know, (laughs) I know I'm these things over here or. These are just some things that I momentarily did some justification for it, but it's only when you take a like kind of absolute responsibility within the context of, yes, you are just a, at the long line of a, a long line of a, of a evolutionary chain almost, but yeah. know the things that you had autonomy over and the things that you contributed towards. And that, and I think that can be very difficult for people because I see in lots of the, in lots of the ways in which even we're trying to deal with climate change, there's just lots of finger pointing. Well, I do this. What do you do? Like, you know, and well, I, I take a... And it, it's the reconciling those opposites that's the problem. Because if, if you imagine, you know, on one end, you've got this kind of neurotic extreme, which is um, I just accept what I'm told. I repress everything. I'll do the things I need to do. I need to make money so I'll have a job um the bottled water is the only water available so by the bottled water it's it's a kind of neurotic extreme a lack of questioning on the other end there's this kind of psychotic extreme which is you know we've all got to go off and live in yurts and in 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 the wilds and um and you know money is bad and 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 that's not true either you know there is a real world i mean i i've i've been poor i didn't like it much and i'm not doing it again and so money is good jobs are good organizations good um industry's good so the real problem is that what Hillman refers to as soul work sits in the middle where we are blending, if you like, reality, the actual hard reality of living with this, this felt sense of what is a good life. And the struggle then is our ability to bring those two things together and think, okay, so how, how am I going to make choices about how I show up given these two, frankly, quite diametrically opposed ideas. This doesn't feel good, 
but I need the cash. This doesn't, you know, this this feels like I'm not fulfilling my authentic purpose, whatever that is. Um, but at the same time, you know, my parents expect me to get a job in this sort of company. Well, yeah, you know, they're both true. So how do you reconcile that? That's the challenge. And you have to, in, in one of the beautiful ideas of the Jungian world, they call it the transcendent function, which is the, the kind of symbol or idea that allows a third position to emerge. So it's not a compromise or a choice. Yeah. It's a way of blending them so you can go, and this is what it looks like when the two are brought together in a way that works for me. I think that's absolutely beautiful. And, and, and I think it's, you know, in this world that's so binary in terms of labels and saying it can be this or this, I think that's almost what's needed. Yeah. yeah. You know, this realization that when I stand at point A and I'm judging point B, and I'm, or I'm standing at point B and I'm judging A, that they're the only two possibilities. And, and, I, and I think that's kind of where I'm always optimistic. Long-term, I'm optimistic about people. Um, you know, we've come a long way since the primordial puddle. Like, you know, things, have, it's not all, ter- you know, obviously there are terrible things happening and I'm not trying to deny or repress that, but things like amazing things have happened along, along our past. But it is, it's almost necessity which creates this, the right circumstances for this third position to emerge. Yeah. And, and with that, that's kind of what gives me hope. And I think you've captured that really beautifully, which is what you said there. I think um, I think I won't take up much more of your time, but I, I, I would just, I didn't intend to have this kind of question at the end of it, but just because you've done a better job of reminding people what they're listening to by saying, what is a good life on a few occasions? Um, what is it? What is a good life for you, Lawrence? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. Um, I think a good life is is. Um, I think a good life is a life that is is. A good life is a story that you tell consciously. You know, this is this is these are choices you make, knowing that you've made them. And I think if you're able to do that, I think that's a pretty good life. I think that's very, uh, that rings true to me and whatever that means, obviously. But uh, I think that that resonates a lot with, with me as well. And I think it's, I know there's something really simple and truthful to that statement. Mm-hmm. Lawrence, thank you very, very much for your time, sir. I've I've had a real pleasure in, in listening to you and talking with you and, and um, yeah, much appreciated. Thank you. It's been a great conversation. Enjoyed it.